do that now. Colossians 2, 1 to 10. You guys ready? Yeah, we're ready. Come on now. Atiyah's talking to me. Y'all talk to me a little bit, all right? For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Verse 6, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. I want to point out a couple of things uh, this morning from this. So much here, we could spend months or even years in these 10 verses. It's so truly so very rich, but I want, to, I want to point to the author that we're learning about who God used significantly. Y'all have heard us talk before, right, about how God uses ordinary people, that you don't have to have high IQ, you don't have to be some sterling leader, you don't have to have brilliance, you don't have to shine or be some dignitary, you don't have to be any of that. God uses ordinary people. In fact, that famous verse in Acts, it says that they were astonished at them, that they had been with Jesus. They were unschooled, ordinary men, but they had been with Jesus, just fishermen, just tax collectors, just ordinary people. And people like me, maybe you're like me, you get relief in that, right? Anybody get relief? Like God just uses ordinary people, but hear me now for a second. God also, for very specific times and purposes, calls out a brilliant leader, right? Calls out a brilliant leader and says, I'm going to use you. I've gifted you. You're endowed with this, but I'm going to use you and only someone like you could be used in this capacity. Both of those things are true. I don't think they're contradictory, but Paul is in that second camp, just an exceptional leader. You've heard me say when we did our Acts series and talked about uh, Acts 9 when Saul became Paul and things got started. One of the most brilliant people, it's easy to argue that Paul is one of the most brilliant people who's ever lived. Astonishing intellect. And so I want to focus a little bit today on him as the verses that we've read and tell you two things that I think are important that I hope can prick us, that can prod us, that can motivate us, propel us to be the people that God desires us to be. The first is Paul loves the church. I don't know if we put that up. He loves the church. In fact, follow, as a follower of Jesus, he knows his commission. Jesus once said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a promise. That's a claim. And I love it. It's one of the reasons I'm a Jesus follower today. Guess what, sports fans? That's true. Oh, my goodness. How true is that? It's abundantly clear how true it is. He loves the church. Notice the language from Colossians 2. I'm pointing you to verse 1 and then also to verse 2. He says, I struggle for. This is something I love so much. It's so dear to me. I struggle for it. Now, I bet you have some struggles in your life, right? Nod your head like we all have some struggles. That's why we encourage you to get in a group. One of the reasons so you can share your struggles. And oftentimes our struggles, the ones I share in my group with my friends, with our staff and elders here are struggles that I'm having with something, struggles against, right? Struggles against temptation, struggles against sin, uh, struggles against a troublemaker, struggles against my own trouble, struggles with the world 
in which we live. But Paul is saying something different. I love these two words back to back. It's a struggle for. I'm struggling for you. So if you've exerted yourself physically in a marathon, when's the Mississippi Blues Marathon? Isn't it coming up real soon? Anybody running that? Nobody? Okay, a bunch of slackers. Nobody is running the Mississippi Blues Marathon. I think it's coming up in, a, when is it? It's the 29th of February. Okay, and none of you are running it. Okay, that's cool. I'm cool. No judgment here. But anyway, if you're running a race, as other people do, exerting yourselves physically, right, you'll know that there's a struggle there. There's the common expression, you know, the trifecta, blood, sweat, and tears. We're putting something into this. We're exerting ourselves. Listen, we don't even have to go to the Greek to understand this. Paul is talking blood, sweat, and tears. He's talking about exertion. He's talking about spending himself. I dropped this off in Paul from Timothy, but we're pouring our life out as a drink offering. And that's what Paul is talking about. It's a struggle It's a struggle for the church, verse 1. For these people, Colossae, Laodicea, all the way, years later, for even us at a church called Fondren. There's a struggle for. And then he talks about in verse 2, I'm doing this struggle. I'm doing this struggle for you. For you, that you would be encouraged in heart, united in love. How good is that? There's something there for us. Is that part of your experience? When you think of people of faith, when you think of your faith, wherever you are in your journey of faith, and I know it varies, but is there encouragement of heart? Are you part of a community like that where you're encouraged in heart, where you are united in spirit? And so Paul is saying, I love the church. I love the church. When I was a young man, it's no secret to some of you, but when I was a young man, I felt a very strange tug to devote my life to the well-being and flourishing of the church. Through the years, a writer named Frederick Buchner has meant a lot to me as he's talked about his own journey. Frederick grew up in New York City. He grew up in a very non-Christian, non-church-going family. His dad committed suicide when he was very young. He grew up in, into and through his early adulthood. He lived in a real well-heeled socialite community, a non-religious community, uh, in an Eastern community. But oddly enough, at a large church in New York City, one day he met Jesus. His life was changed to the point that he went on to, become, to enter into the ministry and become a Presbyterian pastor, a darn good one, I would add. Really good, razor-sharp thinker, and very good, heartfelt writer. Frederick tells a story where early, when he had made a commitment, he didn't have any family or friends, not really any family with him, but no one in his inner circle supported his decision to enter the ministry and become a, become a pastor. At a party with a woman next to him, he tells a story of how she looked over at him and she asked him a question. So why are you entering the ministry? Is it your own idea or were you poorly advised? Years later, Frederick would write, thinking back on his life and how God graciously strengthened him and used him. He writes, he says, he looks back and he thinks that his answer is, has now become this that it wasn't his idea. In fact, it wasn't an idea. He says that it was a lump in his throat, an itching in his feet, and a stirring in his blood. 
God gave him a love for the local church. Do you know when the church was first mentioned? Anybody know the first time ever when the church was mentioned? Matthew gives us an account in Matthew 16 where Jesus says that very thing. First time the church is ever mentioned. Here's, what's, here's what I think we miss. We miss a lot of times how unique what Jesus said was and how unique it is today. It's the first time the church was mentioned. You know, there was Israel, the cradle of civilization, how God used those chosen people. Now the mystery that Paul's talking about in, my, in our small group Wednesday night, there were a lot of questions about the mystery. I haven't preached it directly. We, we'll get into it a little bit more. But God, Jesus moves the ball forward and, and as the ark and the narrative goes forward, um, we see the church come into being. And Jesus said, as we saw, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. No one ever thought about this. No one had ever said that before. No one had ever said anything like that before. Moses did not say, I will build my synagogue. The Buddha never said, I will build my temple. Muhammad never said, I will build my mosque. And Jesus, what he's talking about is not a wisdom tradition. It's not a philosophical school. It's not some train of thought. It's a church. And listen, the church is his family. The church is his legacy. The church is his idea. The church is his presence in the world. And I ask you this morning, where else can you go to find that all that, that teaches over and over time and time again that every single human life has value and is made in the image of God? Where else can you go to find an offer of forgiveness, a promise of a resurrection, the demands of God's judge, judgment, the purpose, the triumph of God's ultimate purpose? Where else can you go but a place called the church? Do you know the church has a mission? At the center of the mission is God's justice being brought into every oppressive situation on the planet. It's God's generosity being brought to every need that, is, that exists. It's God's forgiveness brought to everyone who has failed. The church has a mission, and the church, do you know, is a community, and it's a unique, unique community. It's a unique community in that it does not exist for the enrichment of its members, but those members, it exists for the sacrifice of the people who are outside of that member institution. That is so unique, y'all. And by the way, if you're a member of another institution, I'm a member of several things. You can go to your wallet and pick out some things that you're probably a member of. But how does it work for us when we're a member of an institution where that institution exists for the enrichment of that institution, right? The perpetual enrichment and ongoingness of that institution. There's something very unique about the church. There's a humility to the church that we're going to learn more about in Colossians 3. It's a humility that will bow before the most demeaned and humiliated slave. There's a courage to the church that will stand up against the emperor Nero. There's a mission, there's a community, there's a humility, there's a courage about this thing called the church. So think about it. 2,000 years ago, a penniless carpenter. One more time, you know this, I'm just dropping what you already know, but 2,000 years ago, a penniless carpenter. And now today, now today, this movement of sacrificial love, and truly it's a movement, it has launched more hospitals, research universities. It has launched more relief agencies. 
It has inspired more art than anything in human history. It has spread to every continent, to every culture, and today, billions of people call themselves followers of Jesus. 2,000 years later from a penniless carpenter, it doesn't just exist 2,000 years later. Listen to this. Do you know this? It's growing. Now, where I, I get this, I, I'm, I'm up a little bit on world missions, not as, not as much as I need to be, but look, it's growing in the world. It's growing. It's changing. It's shifting but it's growing 2,000 years ago. And when Jesus made a promise and a claim, by the way, how many promises and claims have you made that, you know, like two weeks later, two years later, mm, you ever seen, you ever been on Twitter and like that tweet didn't age well, right? You ever done that? Anybody ever called you out? Oop, you said it a year ago, but that tweet didn't age well. That's why you should delete your tweets when you make promises and claims, right? But Jesus made this claim that, claim that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And 2,000 years later, Paul says, I struggle for this church. That this church would be encouraged in heart, united in love. That's not an idea. It's better. It's a God idea. It's not an idea of man. And it's worthy. It's worthy, I say today, it's worthy of sacrifice. It's worthy of the struggle. Very few would go into ministry. Very few are called into vocational ministry. I've wanted to quit many times. I know people who are called into it that really aren't called into it. They just think they're called into it. All right, that's the truth. All right, but listen to me. It's worthy. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's something worth sacrificing for. There's a mission. There's a community. There's a humility and there's a courage, and Jesus made this claim, and I believe it's true. And let me tell you what I love about the church, and I'm seeing little snippets of it at Fondren. Here's what I love about the church. It's Jesus's church, and it's about what he says it's about, and it's an offer of forgiveness for everybody. What about me? What about so-and-so? You know, sometimes, you know, sometimes we talk, even here we talk, like, hey, you see so-and-so at church? Woo! But listen, relax a little bit because we are where we're at a place that we all need. We're at a place to remind us that there's an offer of forgiveness that we need to receive. He's given it to us. My mom is, some of you met her, she's the cleanest person I've ever met. If you blame me about being a germphobe, just blame her. She kind of she instilled it in me. She's the cleanest person I've ever met. Growing up, I remember there were times, don't tell her I'm talking about her, but there were times when she would bring other people over, a cleaning team or cleaning person to come clean our house. Guess what she would do before the cleaner came over? She would clean the house. I'm like, mom, what are you doing? She's like, I don't want them to think our place is dirty. I'm like, that's not how it works. You don't clean, they clean. And hear me today. You don't clean you. You can't clean you. Some of you are trying to remove spots. Some of you are trying, but listen, it, you're just rearranging. You're just pushing things under rugs and throwing things in closets. You're scurrying and hurrying. You can't clean you. You shouldn't try to clean you. Jesus cleans you. It's his job. He's the cleanser. He's the only one that can forgive our sins. Now, the church has mixed this up throughout its history. Some of you come to see me to confess your sins. I'm glad that you do. But look, I'm not the one ultimately that can 
forgive your sins. Now, if you've sinned against me, I want you to come see me and tell me about your sin because I want to I release you and I want to be released, right? But he's the only one that can cleanse. He's the only one. And I take great comfort in it. I'm just passing it on to you today to be free of trying to be Jesus in your life. And listen, we're here because we need to be here. And we need someone other than us to say, Robert Green, insert your name, you are forgiven. Now we partner with him There's a process that we're invited in. We have our responsibility. Just like Paul, we struggle. You need to be invited into the struggle, but you are forgiven. He does the cleaning, the cleansing in your life. So two things I'm bringing out. The first one I've said to you, Paul loves the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Paul said in verse one, I struggle for you. In verse two, I want you to be encouraged in heart, united, knitted together in love. The second thing I want to say to you is what, what we see here in Paul, the author of the of church, the letter to the Colossians, is that he values the truth. He values the truth. And Jesus said the truth. Everybody's heard this. Everybody in the room has heard this. The truth will set you free. We see him valuing the truth when we see the armor, if you will, and I'm borrowing from Ephesians 6, but he's putting on armor, he's girding up, he's strapping it on, and he's saying, hey, this, in this world of truth, it will be attacked, and we are prone to fall away. We are prone to falseness. We are prone to, as he would say in verse 4, plausible arguments. The NIV, if you have an NIV, you probably see in your lap, if it's open, that it says fine-sounding, fine-sounding arguments. You know, there are things that sound fine. On the surface, hey, that sounds fine. I'm in. I believe that. I'll follow that. It just sounds fine, but it's not. Plausible arguments. And then philosophy, not philosophy as a branch of study. I think God loves that. But philosophy as in false or empty deceit, he would say in verse 8. And so he loves the church and he values the truth. So in, we're getting into this in a second, but there were, there were ideologies going. There were things that these early followers of Jesus were wanting to fall back on. There were doubts and confusion that they were having. And Paul is saying, there are some things that sound fine, but do not let it lead you away. There is some philosophy. There is some empty deceit that could get the best of you. Don't fall away from the truth. He cared about the truth. If you know something that's true and it matters to somebody, you're going to value it. You're going to guard it. You're going you're to protect it. And that's what he's saying here about the ultimate truth that we have in God's offer of hope and forgiveness and salvation that affects our eternity, all of our eternity. So today, what could that be? What could it be for us? At that time, it was different, a little bit different, but what could it be for us today? What could be the philosophy? What could be the fine-sounding or plausible argument? What could be the empty deceit? I want to quickly uh, give you three of these that are common for us today as I see it pulling people away. The first would be this, this idea that you can't believe in science and God. All right, this is, I, I love this debate. I, I feel like I've really grown in this area. I feel like that a lot that my church taught me growing up was wrong, okay? But here's what I want to say. These two are not in contradiction, science and God. I'm talking to the three youngsters I'm raising and having more and more 
fascinating conversations, particularly with a 21-year-old who's a college junior. You can't believe, this is, a, this is empty deceit. This is a plausible argument, a fine-sounding argument that is not true. You can't believe in science and God. Let me show you a photo of a metal detector. A metal detector is designed to find metal, metal objects. It's great at finding coins in the sand. It's designed to do that. So because the metal detector can find metal in the sand, okay, therefore, a metal detector can find anything everywhere. Is that a plausible argument? Is that true? Is what I said, I, I threw a therefore, a lot of therefores in the Bible. A metal detector can find metal objects in the sand at 30A, where you go. Okay, it can do that. Therefore, hear me now, therefore, this metal detector, metal detectors can find everything anywhere. Is that true? Guess what? Metal detectors aren't very good at finding tennis balls or woolen scarves or isotoner gloves. That doesn't mean that tennis balls, woolen scarves, or isotoner gloves don't exist. The metal detector is just not good at finding them. Stay with me for a second. Science is this way. Science is good at finding what it is designed to detect. It is very, very good at that. Francis Collins is one of the most intelligent uh, people out there. I love to read him. He was the former head of the Human Genome Project. Okay, that's pretty smart. He's now the national director of the National Institute for Health. He's also a follower of Jesus. He put it this way, way better than I could. Science is the only reliable way to understand the natural world but it is powerless to answer questions such as what is the meaning of human existence? Ponder it for a moment. A metal detector. The only way, only reliable way to understand this natural world, but it's powerless to detect the bigger questions. Uh, underneath, well, on this shirt, it says what? Van and I went to a conference in Dallas back in November it says hope for all. The more and more and more I have read of, from scientists and angry atheists, prolific writers, intelligent people, New York Times bestsellers, but the more and more they deduce and draw a conclusion that life is meaningless. Here's a question that science is not able to answer, has not been able to answer. Hope versus despair. Which is more, which is, which is viable, which is, which is true, hope versus despair. And so science and God can both exist. We are called, this is what I teach my children, this is what I want to pass on to you, we are all called to humbly and courageously follow truth wherever it will lead us. So there's all, this is truth. This is inspired by God and God breathed. You will only find truth in here, but sometimes you will learn truth from sitting at a bar with an atheist. God wants us to courageously and humbly follow truth wherever it leads into every discipline, into every sphere of intellect and learning. I believe that with all my heart. When Jesus came, some of you heard me teach this, love God with all the Deuteronomy 6, the Jews taught love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. When Jesus came, he added one, love God with all your heart, soul, 
mind, and strength. Jesus wants you and I to cultivate the life of a mind, of our mind, of your mind, to cultivate that, to grow and expand it. Here's what Jesus never said. Now, some churches teach this erroneously, but Jesus never said, don't ask that question. Don't read that book. He never said that. Just want to be clear. So when it comes to plausible or fine-sounding arguments, when it comes to philosophy or empty deceit, one of the lies is foisted on us, and some of us are buying into it, is that you can't believe in science and believe in God. The second one, continuing with faith here, is faith is believing things for no good reason. Ever heard that? Faith is believing things for no good reason. I was an early teenager. I was watching All in the Family. Anybody old enough to remember All in the Family? Any Archie Bunker fans in the house? Yeah. Archie Bunker was a character designed by Norman Lear to literally change American mindsets. And it was brilliant and masterful in what he did. And Archie Bunker essentially said this, that faith is believing things for no good reason. Paul in Athens, love this, Acts 17. One of, one of my favorite New Testament chapters, Acts 17. Acts 17, 17 to 18. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. It says, Acts 17, 17, that Paul reasoned with them. Reason is a part of it. One of the most brilliant things was said by Pastor John Ortberg of Menlo Presbyterian Church in the Bay Area. He said, the Christian understanding of how things are about the human condition did not grow by avoiding rational conversation on the basis of authority. Remember, the early church had no authority. It was countercultural. It was subversive and provoking and shockative. It was for the undignified and for the slaves and for the poor. Do you, do you, you understand that? No authority. Now, every time the church gets authority, it gets off track. Like history indicts the church when it gets powerful and, and, and authoritative. It's, it's, it's demeaning. I'm going to have to start over. The Christian understanding of how things are about the human condition did not grow by avoiding rational conversation on the basis of authority. Stay with me. It actually grew by inviting rational conversation often when, when opposed by authority. If you are a learner in here today, I would take a picture of that. That's just too good or email me later. But that's just something, I don't even know if you're grasping it enough to appreciate it now, but maybe later. We think, oh, this was some primitive, archaic, ancient religion that was founded with dumb people and just somehow mysteriously uh, perpetuated, and we have it today. There was intelligent folks. Now, listen, the Stoics, they believed only in logic and rational thought and analytics, okay? They were Stoics. We call people Stoics today. Stoics don't even get invited to a lot of parties. Stoics aren't seven on the Enneagram. Stoics uh, don't express themselves uh, very well. God loves Stoics. The gospel is for Stoics. But Stoics are rational, analytical, logical people only. No room for emotion, no room for sentiment. The Epicureans were, like the Stoics, very intellectual. They had a common saying, there's, there's no fear in God and no feel at death. No fear in God because there's no supernatural. No feel in death because there's no afterlife. And you see this, this had a predominance and this was the writer of Colossians. 
This was Paul. This was this intelligent person demonstrating to us that there was a marketplace of ideas. And Christianity, because Jesus rose from the dead, it stood up and it got noticed and it has stood the test of time. So faith, empty deceit, fine-sounding, plausible argument. Faith is not, it's not connected to, to here now, it's not connected to knowledge. Now, the word knowledge is really frequently and deliberately used in Scripture. A prophet of the Old Testament says knowledge is power. Another writer of old in the Bible says, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. Peter would say, add to your faith goodness, and to your goodness add knowledge. Paul would say, for now we know, we know in part, we see dimly through the glass, but we know. He would say in 2 Timothy 1.12, for I know whom I believe, I am convinced that he's able to keep that which I have entrusted to him to that day. There is knowledge there. Another scientist, a biologist, wrote a book. It's a bestseller now, written last year. It's on the charts now. But he wrote a book, mindful of Paul's words, and he's drawing a contrast, not seeing through a glass dimly or darkly, but seeing through, a gra- see- seeing through the glass brightly. That's the name of the book, Seeing Through the Glass Brightly. And his idea there, again, back to it, is that the only knowledge we have is in science. And guess what he does in his book? I'm wetting the two here, but guess what he does in his book? Toward the end of the, the last chapter, end of the whole book, he says that life in general and our lives in particular are meaningless. What I want to say intellectually to anyone in the room, even the most robust of thinkers here, is do, do you see the leap? Do you see the faith in science? Do you see that? Do you see like, there, is there anything in science that could draw that conclusion scientifically? Anything that could really prove that to be true? And I say that no one has any knowledge that would prove to me that my life is meaningless. There is purpose. Hope is greater than despair. We can know, and even though we see dimly, darkly through the glass now, we will see, but there is knowledge. And so I want to close with this idea of valuing the truth. The most famous thing ever said about truth is this, and we put part of it up earlier. Jesus said, and notice the order, the sequence. Hone in on this, even though you've heard it a lot. Don't roll your eyes. If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, Jesus didn't walk around giving advice or dispensing wisdom. Jesus made claims that he understood the nature of reality and that he had the deepest, most logical, most compelling and magnetic foundational understanding of your condition and mine. And he said this, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. That's the part we don't think about much. You see, the second part of this, it's no accident. 
it's the most quoted phrase on the walls of more universities around the world than anything else. No other human had says anything that comes close to this, and no one has said anything as popular as what Jesus said in institutions of higher learning around the world. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. An understanding of reality that you can know. Yes, it's faith, but you can know it. And here's the key. This is what I found, what I invite any skeptic, any cynic into. Because in the Bible, there are skeptics and there's cynics and there's uncertainty and there's confusion and there's doubt. And ultimately, that leads to despair. But the biblical writers would cut through that, cut through the darkness and cut through the gloom and say, you know what? It's by faith, but you can know it. So here's what I found in following Jesus. We have to listen to him. We have to hold to the teachings. Then at some point, we have to say, is this my faith or the faith of my parents? And when we get to that place, we have to start hearing what he says, and then we start doing something about what he says. And what I have said over and over again, that everything he teaches, in fact, read Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, get out a yellow highlighter, you're gonna need a pink one. After that pink one, you're gonna need a red one. After that red one, you're gonna need a blue one. And just highlight what stands out to you because Matthew 5, 6, and 7, how rich it would be if it became true in your life and how the world is longing for the teachings of Jesus on revenge, lust, and anger, and murder, and deception on all these things that affect us and crush us. And Jesus is right every time. And when we, and here's, here's, the, here's what we think. This is how we were brought up. This is where the church has got it wrong. This is where maybe you've gotten it wrong. We say, okay, study, 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 investigate, investigate, investigate. And then if you can reasonably conclude that it's true, then you partially, half-heartedly follow it. Is that what he says? Like this is pretty big. Like what I'm preaching right now, you may not like it, but this is pretty big. If you hold to my teachings, you're really my disciples. Some of us think we are, but we're not. But if you do that, if you take me at my word and you follow me, you're going to see. Your faith, you're going to put the word knowledge in with, with the word faith. And you're going to see that Jesus is true and he's going to make your life better. And Jesus says, I will build my church. Here's what I love about it. So many things, but he says, I will build my church. He is not saying that he'll build that church and that church and that church. He's not saying that that church won't close its doors. The church that was here that built this closed its doors, as most of you know, in May. We might have to close our doors one day if we're not humble and hungry and, and follow him and or scrappy and stay at it and think about the people who aren't even here yet. Jesus never said that church and that church and that church won't close its doors, but he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. My church. Hey, it's not Thomas's church for doubting people or Zacchaeus's church for short people. It's not Peter's church for Enneagram sevens. It's not Andrew's church for people that are built like him. It's my church. And I, what I love about this, he says, I will build my church. I don't have to do it. That may be my greater comfort to me than you, but I don't have to do it. He does it. And we partner with him. Hey, Robert. Why'd you go into ministry? Why do you struggle for the church? Why do you want people to be encouraged in heart and united in love? Was it your idea or were you poorly advised? It really wasn't an idea. 
at all. It was a lump in my throat, an itching in my feet. It's blood pumping and stirring in the deep part of me. Would you pray with me?